You are listening to the Vine Church Sermon Podcast. Thanks for joining us. For more information about the Vine Church, please visit our website at www.thevinemadison.org. It says, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. And then later on in verse 11, And he said, There was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his field to feed pigs. And he was lodging, and he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will rise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven. And before you, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And and the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. And bring the fattened calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead, and he is alive again. He was lost, and he is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf, because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. And his father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this your brother was dead. And is alive. He was lost and is found. This is the word of the Lord. Well, hey, good morning. Uh, like Houston said, my name's Nate. If you've been to a large family and you know, you, you go there and you see people that you've seen for years, and then you're like, who the heck are those people, right? Like, you're like, I've never met you before, but somehow we're related. And uh, that's what this series is like for me. Um, some of you may know this. My wife, our three kids, we moved here 12 years ago to actually be a part of the original team that helped to plant the vine. And so um, there's a deep love, sincere love for this church. Whether you know, you're on the elder team and I've known you for years or whether you're on staff, I uh, think about Jackie and, I mean, she, she gives me coffee every week. That's amazing. Um, she's phenomenal. She doesn't get my coffee, by the way, just so you know that. I get my own. But um, love the Vine Church. Uh, just for a quick moment here, one of the reasons why we do this Madison Multiply series every year 
is because we want our churches, think about the Vine Church, Eastside Church, Redeemer City Church, to be a part of a movement of the gospel that plants churches. And we think that happens best when we collaborate together. And so, I don't know about you, but um, (laughs) these next five weeks, we're doing this series, Learning Evangelism from Jesus. And I've, I've realized, even as we start this series, there is like various hot takes out there as you hear this. Uh, some of you, you hear the word evangelism, and it's just like a code word for proselytizing. And in your mind, uh, there's this kind of negative connotation of someone manipulating or forcing their beliefs on someone else. Others of you, you hear this series and you're galvanized. You're really excited. Like, you're ready to talk to anyone and everyone about Jesus. In fact, you're pretty sure that this city needs him more than a lot of other cities. Uh, others of you, if you're honest, if you enter into this series and you're, you feel a little ashamed, maybe guilty, um, you recognize that you're busy, distracted, apathetic. Others of you, you're just like, I'm no good at that, right? Like, I don't have that gift, so this is for someone else. Well, the next five weeks, let me just encourage you to lean in, because here's, here's our hope. Because I, but by the way, I'm, I'm in there, what I just said, like, I, I, I identify with those. Here's our hope, that God would take the likes of you and me, who are proud, apathetic, distracted, misguided, and grow us into compassionate followers of Christ who faithfully befriend and love and share the hope of Christ with our neighbors, coworkers, family, and friends. And here's what's sweet. What a better way to start than Jesus getting in trouble. Did you notice that in the passage? The conservative religious leaders of the day are grumbling. And why are they grumbling? Because Jesus is hanging out with the moral and religious outcasts of the day. The tax collectors and, yep, sinners of the day. And here's the problem. In that day to eat with someone was to say this. I want a relationship with you. And so the religious leaders are grumbling because they're saying, Jesus, are you just light on sin? Are you light on morals? Are you light on the Bible? You know, Jesus did this so much that in Matthew's gospel, there's this like backhanded dig, and it was this. Jesus, you're a friend of tax collectors and sinners. He did so much. Now here's here's what's interesting. Tim Keller points out that we have a situation where Jesus is consistently drawing irreligious people, individuals, to himself. They're drawn to him, and he is offending Bible-believing religious people of his day. That's what's happening here. 
And he says this, for the most part, the church today attracts conservative, buttoned-down, moralistic people, while the licentious and liberated or the broken and marginal avoid the church. He says, what's, what's the problem there? Why is that the case? Listen, if our churches, and I'll say this, Redeemer City, Vine Church, East Side, if our churches aren't appealing to the irreligious, then perhaps they're full of religious and moralistic people. Now, I know no one likes to be put in a category this morning, right? Wait, the pastor just put me in this category. That said, my general observation is that Keller's right. And that means one thing today. This parable that Jesus tells is for the vast majority of us. Do you know, this is why Jesus tells this parable. He doesn't tell it for the prodigals, for the younger son. He tells it for the religious moralistic of the day. That's why he tells the parable. And here's what I think Jesus wants. Jesus wants Madison Multiply. He wants the Vine Church, wants Eastside Redeemer City to be a community that imitates God's heart for the city of Madison. And to do that, Jesus shows us at least three things this morning. He shows us God's heart. He shows us our heart. And then he invites us to a joy-filled party. So let me pray, and we'll unpack it. Father, uh, this morning, um, we need your help. Uh, We just pray by the power of your Spirit, you take this time, and you'd illuminate our hearts to see your heart, and that you might change us, and that as a result, we might imitate you with those in our midst. Amen. Well, firstly, Jesus shows them God's heart. You know, it's interesting, think about it this way. Jesus begins with their grumbling. He answers with a story, and it's a story we're kind of all familiar with. Many of us are. We can all relate in some measure, but he tells the story of a father and two sons. Think about that for a moment. And listen, you, if you're familiar with the story, you know the father is God. The elder son is the religious Pharisees of the day. And the younger son are the irreligious. It's the tax collectors and sinners. Now just pause for a moment. Jesus has just summarized the entire story of the world in that relationship. There's nothing like this in any other religion. Secular humanism, Buddhism, Islam, none of these worldviews see the the world this way. Because you know what this means? This means God wants a relationship with people. That's what is at the core of it. Jesus, if you want to know God, he's like a father and two sons. And he desires a relationship with all. And the story begins with a son doing something entirely dishonorable, wrong, and shameful. Look, look at verses 11 and 12. He said, there was a man who had two sons. The youngest of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that's coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Let's pause for a moment there. 
Have you ever had your love rejected? Have you ever, has someone ever been a friend to you in a certain season and then when things change said, sorry, no more? Have you ever been in a close relationship with someone in which they found someone maybe better? The father in this story is rejected by his youngest son. In essence, the youngest son has just said this, I want your stuff, I don't want you. Let me ask you, when you walk through that season in which you were rejected, maybe a friend, maybe a girlfriend, maybe whatever, a, a boyfriend, what, how did you respond? Did you blow him up on Facebook? <laughs> in the original setting where this is told, it was highly patriarchal, shame and honor society. And one commentator notes this, that If this were to happen in the ancient Near East where this happened, nothing short of physical blows would have been the response by the father to the younger son. In other words, the younger son would have gotten a beating at the very least. But did you notice what the father does? He divides it. And he lets the son go. He doesn't fly off the handle. He doesn't pull out the, do you know who I am? He doesn't say, if you walk out that door, don't ever come back. Listen, the father patiently endures the pain of rejected love. Do you see the patience of the father? The youngest son leaves, and in verses 13 to 17, he squanders the inheritance in what it says, reckless living. And the toll of that life and those decisions kind of wreak their havoc. And he becomes so, you know, it gets so bad that he's longing to eat the food of pigs, which that's that's the bottom of the bottom. So he makes a plan to return, to confess he was wrong. And so he's going to come back just to be a hired servant because at least they get food. And then in verse 20, we read this. And he, the son, arose and came to his father, but he was still a long way off. His father saw him. Now, we didn't read the first two parables, but in both of those parables, the lost sheep and the lost coin, there's this intense search that goes on. You know, the, the shepherd who loses the one sheep, he leaves the 99, leaves them to go look for the one. He's not staying with nine. He's going out. He's looking. The parable of the lost coin, the, the woman says, intently searches for the lost coin. And so when the passage says, while he was still a long way off, it means It wasn't by chance that the father saw him. In other words, I would just say this. In the story, day after day, the father was looking. 
He was looking for his son to return. Well, at this point, you might say, he's probably looking for his son to return so he can, you know, tell him how much of a fool he is for leaving, right? Or maybe say, maybe looking for some vindication. Yeah, he's going to come groveling back and I'm going to get my honor in this community because I've been shamed by my youngest son. But notice what the text says next. It says he felt compassion. Do you know what compassion is? Chris Wyman writes this, Compassion is someone else's suffering flaring in your own nerves. And think about this for a moment. Much of this youngest son's suffering, what's the root of it? Almost the entire thing is because of his response to the father. It's his disobedience, it's his rejection, it's his choices. And Jesus says the Father is moved to compassion, to empathy. And then the Father says, ran and embraced him and kissed him. I mean, you know this, the heads of families in those days didn't run. The father skirts all social cues and norms and runs. He doesn't care who he sees. It's his son. He shows deep affections. A huge hug, a huge kiss. And then the son starts to get out the speech, right? The speech he'd written before he came. But he can't get past, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Because the father's already started. Get the ring, get the robe, get the shoes. It's all things, all things that say, you're not a servant, you're my son. All is forgiven. The son's rejection of the father is overwhelmed by the grace and mercy of the father. The son's rebellion is no match for the father's love and forgiveness. Listen, the father treats the son unfairly. Because he treats him mercifully. And then the father throws a party. A celebration. Do you see the father's heart? Listen, the, what Jesus is saying here, here, here's the reason why I'm a friend of sinners. Here's why I spend time with those who are marginal and outcast. Because I know the Father's heart, that the Father is patient. He's long-suffering. He's looking. He's compassionate. His grace overwhelms any record of wrong. Let me ask you, Christian, and I asked myself this this week, as you look around your neighbors, friends, coworkers, family, those who don't have a relationship with this God, who's the one who you think God's patience has run out on? Who's the one you think 
God stopped looking for? Who's the one who has made a mess of their life by their choices who you think certainly God's not compassionate towards them? Who's the one who you think, no, their record, I'm sorry, that's a little steep. I don't know if God's grace can quite reach that. You see, I would say this. Jesus is subverting our belittling of God the Father's heart. Do you see how huge it is? Do you see the width and the depth and the height and the length? The reason why Jesus is befriending those who are far from him is because he knows the Father's heart for them. The reason why those who are far from him are actually drawn to him is because in his presence they feel some level of the compassion and the kindness and the love of the Father. Do you see the Father's heart? But secondly, Jesus reveals, I would say, our heart. There is this stunning conclusion to this story. Uh, If you remember when it was read, the older son returns from working in the field. He's been there the whole time working, right? And he hears the music, the beats going, you know? The party's happening. And he's like, hey, what's going on? Finds a servant. Servant's like, oh, your your brother, he got back and having a party for him. (laughs) He is so torqued. Look at verse 28. He says this. But he was angry and refused to go in. Anger. The commentators note that this is the point of great reversal here. Because remember, it started with two sons with the father. The younger son leaves, is estranged from the father, alienated, but now he's returned. The younger son stuck with, or sorry, the oldest son stuck with him, but now the youngest son's returned, and now guess what? He won't go into the party. All of a sudden, the eldest son is on the outside. He's estranged from the Father. He won't go in. It's this incredible reversal. And why won't he go in? Verse 29, here's what it says. Here's the reason. I never disobeyed you. I never disobeyed you. In, 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 In other words, it's this. It's not in spite of his goodness, it's because of it. Listen, this is what is so brilliant about Jesus and what he reveals about the human heart. Let me put it this way. The the younger son, what did he want? He wanted control of his life. And he sought it through just personal autonomy and freedom. Let me, let me be who I want to be. Let me choose to be who I want to be. Let me do what I want to do. I want control of my life. But the eldest son wanted control of his life as well. But he wanted it through moral conformity. In other words, he kept all the rules. If I keep all the rules, then I'm going to get a good life. 
Both were saying this to the Father. Let me do what I want to do. Neither of them were serving God for the purpose of serving God. And this is the crux of the story. The two sons represent two ways of living that separate you from the Father. And let me say this, therefore, whether you're religious or irreligious, whether you keep the rules or whether you break the rules, sin has a million different faces. Some look really good, and some look clearly wrong. But the only way back, and so if you're a Christian, you know this, but the only way back, right, it's not through your performance, but it's through trusting in Jesus and what he's done through, the, through his work on the cross and his resurrection. But let me, let me draw us in for a moment, and I want to show you two aspects of the elder brother's heart. Because even if you're a Christian, even if you've trusted in Jesus, I'll just say this, like, there are shades of the elder brother. There is a likeness that can still remain. So look at verses 29 and 30. But he answered his father, look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. Two things. The first thing that's true about the elder brother is just comparison. The elder brother gets angry because he hasn't gotten a party. He has been treated unfairly. He expected, because he lived a good moral life, that he would get something in return. Let me put it this way in contemporary terms. One of the barriers for people who are like an elder brother to befriending those far from God is that sometimes in our lives as Christians, things aren't going well. Maybe it's sickness. Maybe it's suffering. Maybe it's job challenges. Maybe it's relationship status. You've been faithfully serving, and yet your life is still going horribly. And you're, you're angry. You're bitter. And you look around, and you look at people who are apathetic about God, who aren't serving as much as you, who live less moral lives than you, and their lives seem to be going well. And you're bitter and you're angry. That's what's happening here with the elder brother. Are you bitter? Are you comparing your life to others? The second is this, is superiority. In verse 30, the eldest brother points out the record of the younger son. In fact, he won't even identify with his brother. He says, this son of yours. You notice that? Like, it's not even, like, this isn't my brother. This is your son. You know, it's kind of like sometimes when my wife says to me, that's your child, right? Whatever, you know, you know that, parents. Um, listen, when you say that, this son of yours, what you're doing is, you're elev- you've got to have a view that you're better than them. That you're superior to them. That's the only way you can say that, right? 
I'll say this, listen, our cultural moment in almost every social media feed, why is there so much division in our, in our world today in America? I'll, I'll give you a couple examples because this is where it lives and this is, it's not just here, but how about Christian nationalism? My real self, this is identity stuff, is found in the fusion between American and Christian and being white and Protestant. And if you don't fit into that, you're inferior. Or the other slant to it is having your primary identity as a minority. My true self is found in myself being marginalized, whether it be race, gender, sexual identity. It's a virtue to be oppressed, and anyone who is, has more power is inferior. And it doesn't just live there. Listen, if, if you build your life, you build your identity, if this is where you find your significance in your performance at work, in how much is in your income, in your status, or, or in a relationship status, if, if there's anything like that and you relate to others and that's where you find your identity, if anybody doesn't quite measure up, then you feel superior. And here's the kicker. Even if you're like, no, that's not me. I would never do that. How do you feel towards the elder brother who's feeling superior towards the younger brother? Oh, you feel superior, don't you? <laughs> I hate those people who look down on others. I'm so much better than them. And there you go. Guess what? We're all there. Church, what's the antidote? I mean, if comparison and superiority are in each of our hearts, what do we do? Where do we go? It's interesting. At the end of the parable, Notice how the father is entreating the elder son to come in. It's really remarkable. The father goes out and meets the angry elder son and says, come in and join the party. And one of the things about the party, because it's all throughout the first two parables and this parable as well, they're all marked by joy. In verse 10, it says, just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over the sinner who repents. In verse 32, it was fain to celebrate and be glad for this. Your brother was dead and is alive. He is lost and is found. It's, there's joy everywhere. The two things. Because here's the deal. If you're a Christian, you're actually in the party. You're received. But I'll say this. If you have an elder brother likeness, you lack joy. That's what we need to do. Listen, I'll put it this way. Firstly, you need to repent of your righteousness. You need to repent of anything and everything that you think builds a record to make you acceptable to God. 
Listen, the fundamental basis of our belief about the gospel is this, is that it took a man dying on the cross to pay for our sins. You know what that does? That humbles you. Paul said in his epistle, after listing all of his religious accolades, all the things that would measure up, he says, it's all rubbish. What are you counting as rubbish? And secondly, you've got to revel in the Father's love for you. One of the stunning things is whether you identify as a younger son or an elder son, that the Father is compassionate towards you. He's patient. Even when the elder brother won't come in, he comes out, compassionately entreats him to come in. He says, all I have is yours. And that means this, that no matter how messed up you are today, comparison, superiority, or whatever it is, do you know the love of the Father? Let me put it this way. In the movie The Fisher King, it's an old movie a number of years ago, Robin Williams plays a down-and-outer named Perry. And Perry is in love with a girl, Lydia, who he has never met. And through a series of events, he finally meets her. And that same day, he gets a date with her. And the date goes so well. It couldn't have gone any better. But then Lydia begins to think out loud. And she says this, And then we'll exchange phone numbers, and you'll leave, and you'll never call. And I'll go to work, and I'll feel so good for the first hour, and then every so slowly I'll turn into a piece of dirt I don't know why I'm putting myself through this. It was really nice to meet you. Good night. And then Perry says, good night. Excuse me, but I don't want just one night. I have a confession to make to you. And Lydia says, you're married? You're divorced? You have a disease? And Perry says, no, please stop. I'm in love with you. And not just from tonight. I've known you for a long time. I know that you come out from work and fight your way out that door. You get pushed back in. And when you come back out, I walk with you to lunch. It's a good day if you stop and get that romance novel at the store. And I know that you get a jawbreaker before you go back into work. And I know you hate your job. And you don't have many friends. And sometimes you feel uncoordinated. You don't feel as wonderful as everybody else. Feeling as alone and separate as you feel you are. I love you. I love you. I think you're the greatest thing since Spice Racks. And I'd be knocked out if I could just have that first kiss. And I won't be distant. I'll come back in the morning. I'll call you if you'll let me. And Lydia says, you're real? Aren't you? Listen, the the writer of this script knows something about all of us. He knows it's going to get us. Because we all long for a kind of love that is still there, even when we're really unlovely. And friends, that's a script, but the gospel is true. In other words, to have the joy, to join in the party, you need the gospel. You need it daily. You need a community around you that will be in your life, that will speak it to you regularly. And if it sinks in, it'll change your posture in evangelism. Listen, if you understand that the friend of sinners is your friend 
who is a sinner. (laughs) I mean, he still loves you. He's still with you. Then that will empower you to be a friend of other sinners. And you won't look down at them. And you won't compare. Let me ask you, who is it around you? On your street, in your classroom, in your office, who is far from Christ? Who is it? Let me ask you this. Are they entrusting their life to you? Listen, you know in Madison, it's not a track. It's the long game of patiently loving and walking next to people who are far from Christ. And you keep showing up. You just keep loving. And you keep listening. You know, years ago, when we were first planting the vine, I remember there was a young, single, epic employee who came and she was in our city group. And I remember she was the quiet one of the group. And then, you know, it's one of those things when you start, start something, like how is this vision ever going to be lived out? How is it ever going to be possible that someone's going to go out and, and share the hope of Christ? I mean, I mean, I get paid to do it, but just like normal people, what, what would happen? And um, I'll never forget, <clears throat> we're just opening up a conversation in our city group. Hey, where's God at work? This little quiet, single girl, woman, I should say. I shouldn't say girl. She's like 23, whatever. She goes, well, I've been meeting with a coworker, and she's not a Christian. And we've both been really struggling with anxiety. And we had dinner last week. And I just had an opportunity to share about how the gospel is good news for those who are anxious. And I thought, that's it. That's it. Let's pray. Father, um, we need your help. Forgive us for our comparison and our superiority complex. Lord, help us to know that you are a friend of sinners. And Lord, give us a heart for those around us. Open up doors. Give us humility and give us boldness for your sake.